On September 16, 1620, the ship finally left England, departing from port months later than planned. The 102 passengers on board pressed together into a five-foot-high area below deck that was only 50 feet long and 25 feet wide, something roughly the size of two two-car garages. And it was here that they spent the next 66 days crossing the Atlantic. Of the passengers on board, about two-thirds traveled for business, but the remaining 35 or so were on the ship for religious reasons. These colonists were separatists from the Church of England, a risky thing when disobeying the state church could lead to fines, imprisonment, whippings, and hard labor. They'd tried moving to the Netherlands, but that had its own dangers. The jobs were low wage, and the kids were being lured away by the lifestyle that surrounded them there. Instead, these separatists struck on another idea. Rather than face the old world's rules, they would make a new home on the other side of the ocean. After almost 10 weeks at sea, they reached land and saw a forest, the coast covered in trees down to the shoreline. But what lay beyond those hills? Were there forests or lakes, plains or valleys? I picture them straining, trying to see as far as possible, wondering what discoveries were waiting for them. Only a little of this world had ever been mapped. So much of what they saw was a mystery, but a hopeful one. A similar feeling must have spread through the ark as they removed the roof and looked out at the mountains surrounding them, a landscape rearranged by the flood. The anticipation and excitement had to build until the day the door finally opened on the ship, letting in a rush of fresh air and offering them a chance to venture out and explore. Cages and pens are opened, animals stretch and run for the door and down the mountain, letting off the energy of a year spent inside. Noah leaves the ship, builds an altar, and offers a sacrifice of thanks. Then, looking around, just like the pilgrims on the Mayflower, he gazes out at a place with no map, a place that's a mystery, but one full of potential. Noah sees a new world packed with possibilities. But, though we might not know it yet, soon that new world will start to look a lot like the old one. At the end of the last episode, I talked about Noah finally getting to leave the ark. I mentioned the altar and the sacrifice and God's acceptance of that sacrifice. But I didn't get into the details. After God accepted Noah's sacrifice, he talks to Noah for the rest of that chapter in Genesis and more than half of the next one. It's such a long section that John Calvin figured Noah must have been pretty anxious for God to spend so much effort trying to encourage him. But that's not the only thing God was doing. God was also explaining to Noah how to make the new world succeed. This is a lot like the instructions God gave Adam and Eve when he first created them. And they even start the same way. God says, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, end quote. But then the directions change. Noah's not inheriting the same world Adam and Eve were given. The flood wiped it clean, but it's still a sinful place. So while God made Adam and Eve the rulers over the animals, and in Eden, when things were perfect, they could rule by love. Now it's different. God tells Noah that the animals will dread people. Instead of love, humans would rule by fear. Animals would run and hide from them. 
And given the next thing God says, that makes sense. Because while God gave green plants for food to Adam and Eve, now he gives Noah permission to eat the animals too. We don't know why God added this rule, but it could be because the world after the flood was different than the healthy, fertile landscape from before. The water would have washed away the topsoil, leaving bare rock in places. Dark clouds of ash spewed from volcanoes would darken the sun and make the summers dimmer and colder, increasing the work it took to grow crops and gardens. Even if Noah could adapt, rebuild the soil, and grow crops that would survive in the cold, that would all take time. Until then, at least, he needed a source of food. It's true, Noah brought a storehouse with him on the ark, but they'd been chipping away at that supply for over a year. The food might still be good, wheat can keep for a long time if stored properly, but storing it properly involves keeping the moisture away, something hard to do on a ship full of animals and people being tossed about on a worldwide ocean. And if they didn't keep it dry, if moisture levels got above 15%, you'd start to get mold. Above 20%, some bacteria begin to grow. Noah brought lots of food with him, but now, a year later, there's no telling how much he has left or what state it's in, and he still has to use some of it to plant new crops. Noah's food supply might be running low, but many of the animals, they only had to wait for the grass to grow. God gives Noah permission to eat animals, but this doesn't mean all animals. There might have been some implied limits on what animals Noah could eat, limits that perhaps excluded animals who died a natural death or ones killed by other animals. And it may have even been limited to clean varieties, like those described later in the Bible. But that's a best guess. The command here isn't specific on those details. But God does emphasize one thing. He says, quote, But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. End quote. This is a unique rule. You don't find this kind of limit anywhere else in ancient Middle East archaeology. And commentaries say it was there for at least a couple of reasons. First, making people drain all the blood from an animal before eating it helped prevent cruelty because it stopped people from roasting or cooking animals alive. That's the minor part. More important, though, this rule also focused everyone's attention on blood as a symbol of life. And continuing that idea, God turns from animals to the importance of human blood. He tells Noah that both men and animals will have to give an account for any human blood they shed for any humans they kill, and that humans who killed other humans would be executed. In laying out this constitution, the rules of this new world, God shows the importance he places on life, and on human life in particular. That life came from God. Humans were to consider it something sacred. And if they kept that principle in mind, it would help them realize the significance of the sacrifices they offered. Sacrifices that pointed to the promise of salvation God made to Adam and Eve when they'd been forced to leave the Garden of Eden. God finishes where he started. He tells Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and to have many children. The flood wasn't about destroying humanity. It was about resetting the system. With those instructions still in the air, God makes a promise. Genesis records it as a promise made to every bird, animal, and human who came off the ark and to all their descendants. God says, quote, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. End quote. And this is one of the famous parts of the story. After making this promise, God gives them a sign and says, quote, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me 
and the earth. End quote. Whenever there's rain, the rainbow is God's symbol that the rain won't become a flood to cover the whole earth. This is where the Bible's details run into physics. Rainbows are made by different wavelengths of white light reflecting and refracting inside a raindrop to split into a spectrum of colors. This shouldn't be something new after the flood. The flood wouldn't have changed the physics of how light and reflection and refraction work. And scholars tend to come down on the side that rainbows would have existed before the flood, too. But that all depends on rain. If there wasn't rain before the flood, as I talked about before, this might have been the first rainbow anyone had ever seen. Picture that. It's getting toward evening. The sacrifice is smoking on the altar. God's talking to Noah, and Noah's standing there, looking off into the distance at some lingering rainstorm showering one of the mountains or valleys. Then, as God makes this promise, the clouds skating across the sky part, and sunlight streams through from behind him, and he gets his first view of that gleaming arch across the sky. It had to be captivating. It put an exclamation point on God's promise that the flood was over, and it would never come again. Genesis spends almost a third of a chapter on God's promise that there would never be another flood, and on the rainbow as a symbol of that promise. It emphasizes and re-emphasizes that this is a promise for all creatures everywhere, through all time. It's a lot of repetition, but if you think about who God was speaking to, and about the people writing this promise down, maybe Shem or Noah, people who lived through the flood, you can understand why there was so much detail. As they stand there on the mountain, volcanoes might still be erupting in the distance. Aftershocks, which even today can come years after the original earthquake, are probably still rumbling through the ground, making the mountain tremble beneath their feet. If rainstorms never happened before the flood, they'll happen now, and that includes hurricanes and typhoons, rainstorms that can dump almost three inches of rain in an hour. Without this promise, without God emphasizing that there would never again be a flood to cover the whole world, Every time it started to rain, they might be tempted to run for the ark, to take cover just in case another flood was coming. That fear would always be in their mind. So God took it away. He wanted Noah and Shem and Japheth and Ham to focus on building a new home, rather than worrying about the rain. But before Noah could move out of the ark, he had to have somewhere to move to. Earlier, I talked about not having a map, about Noah only knowing what he could see from the top of the ark. So, as the next morning dawned, I pictured the family loading up for an expedition, taking a little food and a few supplies, and setting off down the mountain, looking for a place where they could build homes, plant gardens, and graze their livestock. Today, we have satellites that take pictures from space of places all around the world that are better than any map in history. And if that's not detailed enough, we can find people who live in those places who can take pictures and show us what it looks like. This all makes it hard to think of what it was like for Noah. Hard to get a sense of the mystery of exploring a place no human has ever gone before. Imagine what Noah might have seen. Based on where the ark landed, in the mountains of Ararat, the best guess we have for that today is that Noah was looking at what we call the Armenian Highlands. Today, Armenia is a landlocked country between the Black and Caspian Seas. It touches Turkey, Azerbaijan, Iran, and Georgia. But that's only the modern borders. In the past, Armenia was a larger place, touching the seas on both sides and including parts of both Turkey and Iran. 
The area is mountainous, with fast-moving rivers and waterfalls. Lakes collect in the valleys, with Lake Van or Lake Savon and Lake Ermia as some of the largest. You can picture Noah looking out from a ridgeline and seeing the ancient, oversized versions of some of those lakes, probably still swollen with water from the flood. Maybe it took a day of exploring, maybe a couple of days, but when they found a place where they could get water, where they could grow food and graze their animals, a place that offered shelter from the weather, when they found that spot, they climbed back up the mountain to the ark and started to take the ship apart. We often ignore this part. It's true, Genesis doesn't say Noah dismantled the ark. But think about it. Imagine your ship ran aground on a deserted island and you had to figure out how to survive there. You have nothing but the materials on the island and whatever you could salvage from the shipwreck. If that was the case, would you leave the ship alone? Would you take nothing off of it and try to start from scratch? No. You'd break apart doors and remove windows. You'd take curtains and rugs and tables and chairs and tools and boxes and anything that wasn't bolted down and bring it ashore onto the island so you could reuse it. The same thing would have happened here. If the family needed to build a barn further down the mountain, they had three choices. Take wood from the ark and reuse it. Try to scrounge the wood from trees and other debris that had spent the better part of a year as driftwood on an ocean. Or wait for new trees to grow. Which of those options would you choose? And remember, anytime you use a tool you brought with you, saws, hammers, axes, you wear it out a little bit more. And there's no civilization around to repair it if it breaks. Once something is broken... You have to make a new axe or saw or drill or chisel on your own. All of this pushes me toward the idea that Noah and his sons, his wife and his daughters-in-law, when it came time to leave the ark and build a new home farther down the mountain, they would have taken anything they could from the ark to help them on their way. Picture Noah prying apart cages and railings that used to hold back the ancestors of elephants and horses. Shem and Japheth might be climbing through the decks of the ship, pulling up floorboards and throwing them down to a pile outside. Ham stands, watching it all, seeing the ship turn into lumber. And then he loads that wood onto wagons or sledges that can be pulled down the mountainside. When they're done, maybe the only thing left is the shell, the thick hull of the ship, pegged and fastened together and coated in layers of pitch both inside and out. Something perhaps not worth breaking apart to get at the wood inside. Think about the mindset you have to have to do this. Not only are you breaking apart something you spent most of a century fitting together so the joints were as near to perfect as possible, not only was the Ark your home for a year and your only link back to a now-destroyed civilization, but it's also the world's only lifeboat if God is wrong or if he doesn't keep his promise and another flood does come. Wouldn't that last thought be the sticking point? If you didn't trust God, wouldn't you pause before you broke apart the only thing in the world to survive the flood? Continents didn't survive. The ark did, and now you're pulling pieces off of it? To do that, you have to believe that you won't need the ark again. You have to trust God. Noah and his family strip everything they can off of the ark. They haul it to their new settlement. And then they do the same sorts of things that people have always had to do when arriving in a new area. They find ways to build shelters, ways to collect water. They plant gardens and put up fences to keep animals out. They pull up stones to stack walls for a corral and chisel out reservoirs for storing rainwater, perhaps waterproofing them with plaster, like the cisterns found in Crete. 
And this is all either done from experience, from remembering how people used to do it before, or it's invented from scratch. There was no outside help. If a rock was too heavy, you either figured out a way to lift it, or you left it where it was. With this in mind, if you had been Noah and you'd known for 120 years that a flood was coming and that it was going to wipe out all the technology of the world besides what you brought with you on the ark, what subjects would you have made sure to memorize? What instructions would you have written down? What materials and books would you tuck away in the library on board the ship so they wouldn't get lost? And what details would you not realize were important until it was too late? The family settles in. Weeks, months, and years go by. Noah lives the life of a farmer, watching the weather, planting crops, harvesting them, and storing food for winter. Everyone probably works together, gathering food that grows in the wild, or taking sheep and goats out to graze, and then penning them up again at night. Every now and again, but perhaps more rarely as the months and years go by, the ground still shakes with an earthquake, or the sky fills with ash from some distant volcano all part of the earth settling into its new arrangement. This new world is originally just eight people, the eight who survived on the Ark. But with this passing of time come additions to the family. Shem has a son just two years after the flood. Japheth and Ham have kids too. And life starts to follow a routine. Twenty years, maybe more, go by, and somewhere along the way, Noah plants a vineyard. The weather in Armenia is good for growing grapes. It was in Armenia in 2007 that researchers discovered a cave with a grape press dating back thousands of years, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, grape presses ever discovered. And along with the press, they found grape seeds that are the same as the grapes people still grow today. And they might be a lot like the grapes Noah grew. Noah plants a vineyard, waters, waits, prunes, and in three to four years, he begins harvesting grapes. You harvest grapes in clusters. And once you have them, you can either press the clusters to get fresh grape juice that you preserve, or you can let the grape juice ferment and turn into wine. Genesis says that Noah chose the second option. It says that he, quote, drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, end quote. Now, there's some debate about whether Noah meant to get drunk. Scholars suggest maybe wine hadn't been made before this point, or that Noah didn't realize how it would affect him. Personally, I'm unconvinced. There's no reason to think people hadn't made alcohol before the flood. And it's not like grape juice easily turns into good wine. Grape juice spoils easily. It takes work to make it into wine. Look at the process you have to follow. After pressing the grapes, you wait while the yeast on the grape skins digests the sugar in the juice and converts it into alcohol and carbon dioxide. That process takes a week and a half to a month. During that time, if the wine gets too hot, the yeast dies. If it gets too cold, the yeast isn't productive. And even if the temperature is right, if the concentration of alcohol gets too high, the yeast quits working. On top of everything, you have to keep air away, because if air mixes in with the wine, some of the bacteria found on grapes can turn wine into vinegar. I suppose it's possible that Noah could tell the grape juice was spoiled, but didn't realize the effect it would have on him. But considering the history of alcohol making all around the world and all through history, I think Noah might have known what he was doing. But this begs the question, if Noah knew, why did he do it? One theory guesses it was nothing more than drinking too much during a feast, perhaps a feast celebrating the grape harvest. But there's another theory I wonder about. 
When you drink wine, something that would be about 12% alcohol today, your body releases endorphins that make you feel good, and serotonin levels go up, helping your mood. Following some trauma, people talk about using alcohol to feel less anxious, less depressed. And when Noah grew grapes and drank the wine from them, you can imagine he might have been doing the same thing. After the flood, after seeing the world destroyed, it's not hard to imagine Noah having flashbacks, reliving waves smashing into the hull of the ark, thinking about the world he grew up in, the people he knew, and knowing that everyone but his family is dead. It doesn't matter that those people decided to stay outside the ark. I still think the memory of it might get to you. Add to that the weight of knowing that rebuilding the world, starting everything over, that all of that rested on him? And I can see how Noah would be overwhelmed, how he might want to drink and forget everything for a while. It doesn't excuse it, but it does help you understand. We don't know the whole backstory here, whether Noah drank by accident or did it on purpose to help with his stress or for some other reason, but it is interesting that this story made it into Genesis. It shows that Genesis isn't a whitewashed version of history. Noah's not a perfect person, but a real one, someone like us, someone who makes mistakes just like we do today. Noah gets drunk and goes to his tent, and this is either a house like a nomad might use or maybe something temporary, something set up near the vineyard during harvest time. He goes to his tent, and perhaps it's hot outside because Genesis says he takes off his clothes and falls asleep. And a little while later, Ham shows up and goes into the tent. Genesis doesn't say whether Ham went into Noah's tent knowing that Noah was drunk and naked, or if he just stumbled upon Noah while going about some other chore. But in either case, Ham sees Noah lying there. Seeing isn't the problem. It's what Ham does next, because after looking at Noah, he goes outside and tells Shem and Japheth about it. And just like the parallels between what God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and what God told Noah after the flood, there are some interesting links between what Ham does and what Eve did with the fruit. Genesis emphasizes that both of them saw. It emphasizes what they looked at. This probably wasn't just a glimpse. It was purposefully doing something they knew they weren't supposed to do. And then, not content with doing it themselves, they went and spread it. Eve took the fruit to Adam, and Ham went to tell his brothers. I picture Ham coming up to them with this gleam in his eye and a smirk on his face, finding them somewhere else in the camp and telling the story. Their dad is in his tent. He's passed out and not wearing any clothes. Noah, the righteous guy, the person who saved humanity. He's now no better than a common drunk sleeping off a hangover. We can only guess at Ham's motive, why he did this. Maybe he only wanted Shem and Japheth to join in on the fun. Perhaps, as John Calvin thought, Ham wanted to use Noah as an excuse for his own bad behavior. If Noah, the most righteous person in the world, is fallen asleep drunk, it gives you some room to argue that your sins aren't so bad, right? And so he comes to Shem and Japheth to get witnesses. That's all possible, but based on what happened next, I wonder if Ham knew that Shem and Japheth wouldn't want to make fun of Noah. If he knew that his brothers looked up to their dad, that they respected him. If that's the case, when Ham came and told them about what he'd seen, it wasn't just to mock Noah, but also to insult his two older brothers for using their dad, a drunk, as their role model. And you have to think that this wasn't the first time Ham did this sort of thing. His disrespect, his contempt, 
probably started earlier. This was just the latest in a long series of things. Perhaps it went back before the flood. Maybe Ham missed that world, that civilization. I wonder if he didn't think they should take apart the Ark, just in case another flood came. Whatever the history, this was Ham's chance to point out to everyone that his father was an old fool, and perhaps get people to change sides, and to follow him instead. Ham sees Noah and goes to Shem and Japheth and tells them, but Shem and Japheth don't go to sea. Instead, they take some clothes, imagine a cloak or a coat, something like a blanket, and back into Noah's tent, dragging it with them, and covering Noah up without seeing anything. And then they leave him there to sleep it off. Noah does sleep it off, and sometime later, maybe the next day, Noah wakes up, and you can imagine he's got this hangover, probably a headache, and somehow he finds out the story. And he doesn't find it out just because there's a cloak laying over him. You can't get all these details just from seeing a cloak, even if you know you didn't leave it there. So I wonder if Noah hears it from his wife, or maybe Shem and Japheth come and tell him. Or perhaps when he wakes up and gets dressed, he sees everyone staring as he leaves his tent, people pointing and whispering. Because you can imagine Ham didn't stop the fun with Shem and Japheth, and now everyone knows. The story is an open secret. As Genesis puts it, when Noah finds out what his youngest son has done, he says, quote, Cursed be Canaan, end quote. This is a strange thing to say. Ham is the person who did it. Canaan is Ham's son, Noah's grandson. Because of this, at least as far back as Origen, an early Christian theologian, there's the theory that it was Canaan who first saw Noah and went and told Ham his father about it. You can picture this grandson, maybe a teenager, finding Noah in his tent and running to tell his dad, running to embarrass Noah. Noah says, quote, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers, end quote. And this comes across vengeful, but it might not be Noah's reaction to some personal insult, not a reaction to Ham or Canaan mocking him while he was drunk. Noah might be referring to a deeper problem. The fact that Canaan and Ham wanted to embarrass him, that they wanted to spread the story around, it suggests disrespect was a habit. Noah wasn't so much cursing Canaan, dooming him to a future as a servant because of this one thing, but perhaps telling Canaan where his choices were taking him. It's cause and effect. Just as Ham's bad character had already made an impression on Canaan, now, if Canaan followed in Ham's footsteps, it would ultimately result in his kids and grandkids becoming servants or slaves. But that works both ways. There are bad habits, and there are good ones. Noah heard about Shem and Japheth too, and he turns and blesses both of them, including a promise that Canaan would be their servant. If Ham is passing on habits of disrespect and cruelty, Shem and Japheth are doing the opposite. They didn't just avoid making fun of Noah, they went out of their way to make sure they didn't look and they covered up his embarrassment so that no one else would look at him either. The choices Shem and Japheth were making were impressing on their kids a character of kindness and respect, the opposite of what Ham was passing down. This isn't to say that people are doomed, forced to follow the bad habits of their parents and grandparents, just that we inherit those tendencies. There's still a chance to change, but only when we choose to. Whichever way we pick, this story shows that small choices can cast a long shadow. Daily decisions become habits, and habits determine destiny. I don't think Ham and Canaan were this way in a day, and neither were Shem and Japheth. What they did 
was practiced behavior. And it makes me wonder, what things are we practicing today? What choices are we making? Do we trust God and dismantle the ark like Noah might have done? Or do we hedge our bets just in case there's another flood? Like Ham, do we look when we should look away? Perhaps staring back at a past that God saved us from and wish we were still there? Or do we look forward to the future he has in store for us? Every day we make choices, and they add up until, in the end, it's our choices that make us. Old habits die hard. You can see it in what happened with the Pilgrim Fathers when they came ashore from the Mayflower on November 11, 1620. They had the chance to start over, to build a new world. But instead of forming their new settlement as a haven for freedom, over time their colony in that new world started doing the same things that made them flee the old one. People were required to go to church. Those with different religious opinions were fined or whipped or banished. In the same way, when Ham made fun of Noah and spread the story around, he showed that the flood didn't cure the cancer of the world that existed before it. The roots of that cancer were still there. And as the world began to grow, and new trees and bushes and grasslands sprouted, the ideas that formed Cain's civilization, they were sprouting again too. Talking about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Genesis says, quote, From these the whole earth was populated. End quote. But not right away. God told people to, quote, fill the earth, end quote. And there's this idea of spreading out. But most of the people didn't want to. Instead, they banded together. They built a city, and they started to work on a tower. Before the flood, people didn't follow God. What happens when people in the New World ignore him too? That's in the next episode. Until then, if you want to sort through more details that didn't make it into the story of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, WiderBible.com has articles, references, and links to get you started. The website also has a place for asking questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.